Welcome to The Pharmacy Benefit, a podcast that highlights the role of PBMs in serving millions of patients and consumers throughout the country. I'm JC Scott. Now that we know who will be president in January, or at least we think we know, and what the makeup of Congress may be, what could that mean for healthcare policy in this country, specifically issues involving healthcare costs, drug pricing, insurance coverage? Joining me today are two friends with significant political expertise and experience who I'm hoping can help us answer those questions. Meg Houck has spent her career shaping public policy and advising officials at the highest levels of government. Prior to launching the consulting firm Nathanson & Houck, Meg served as health policy advisor to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. She worked on issues addressing Medicare, Medicaid, and FDA reauthorization, and was the chief architect of the Senate Republican Conference Strategy on the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010. Meg also worked in the administration of former President George W. Bush, both in the White House and at HHS, and had a prior stint on Capitol Hill with former Senator Don Nichols of Oklahoma. Chris Jennings is the president and founder of Jennings Policy Strategies. Chris has done two tours of duty in the White House, first as senior advisor for health policy in the Clinton administration, and then serving in the same role for President Obama. He spent nearly a decade in the U.S. Senate, including as the deputy director of the Special Committee on Aging for three senators, and as a member of the Bipartisan Commission on Healthcare. Since 1992, Chris has advised over 10 Democratic presidential campaigns on health reform policy. This includes serving as a current informal senior advisor to Vice President and now President-elect Biden, although I want to make clear that Chris is not here as a representative of the Biden campaign. Meg, Chris, I am impressed and intimidated by both of your resumes. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. And I'll state for our listeners, we are not here to show favorites or preferences. We're here to talk about the future of policymaking and do a little bit of speculating along the way. So let's start with a question for both of you. And and Meg, I'll ask you to go first. You and I had had many conversations before the election, and you expressed a, a quiet confidence that even if Vice President Biden were to win, which it seems he has, that Republicans would hold on to the Senate. And while there are two runoffs, I think it's safe to say Republicans surprised a lot of people with the outcomes in the Senate and House races. And then, Chris, you you were always confident along the way in Vice President Biden's chances, never had a lot of doubt. So while you both may have seen it coming, not many political pundits predicted the outcomes we saw. So so what happened? What did you guys know that they didn't? What did the pollsters miss? Well, Chris and I are extremely prescient, so you should always listen to us. I would say that in looking at what the pollsters missed and the polling, it sounds like there was an under sort of an under survey of of people. And I think, and I'm not a pollster, so I can't speak to this, but I do think it's hard in a world where only my business partner and my mom have a landline. How do you get people to answer the phone and tell you who they're voting for? How do you do random surveys and things like that? And you can try to do it, but most people don't answer cell phones that they don't know the number of. So I do think that the the polling industry probably needs to figure out a little bit how they're going to go forward. I think from my perspective, there were two things that I thought were important in this race. One is that it's hard to beat an incumbent. And it just is. And that is always the case, Republicans or Democrats. And the other is that Trump was running and needed to win in states that we didn't have Senate races. So Trump winning in Florida is great. Rubio and Scott aren't up. So if if Trump, you know, Trump in North Carolina, the good thing for Tillis is that he ran ahead of Trump. 
So Arizona, Martha McSally was inextricably linked to Trump. If he won, she won. If he lost, she lost. So I think that the fact that we had races, he could lose states that we did not have races in and win states that we did and still lose and keep the Senate. Also, I do think there is a lot of people may question this, but I do think there's some psychology to the American people going into the voting booth and saying, I don't know that I want every, I want party to have total control. And there's more ticket splitting than, than people think. Chris, what's your perspective? Well, I think that Meg was more right than I was, frankly. I had felt like many people that the 2016 race should have taught the pollsters how to compensate for underreporting of Donald Trump's capability to bring out voters. Um, I think he's maybe he's extraordinary. He he got more votes this time around than last time around, and that's you know you, you get out those voters, and then if you know Collins, you look at some of these Senate races, it was kind of a combination of his base overperforming, and then some other people saying, "And I like this person too," <laughs> you know, and. One thing that we've learned about the polling world is we over rely on it, uh, particularly for um, these elections. They're elections at the moment. A polling's a static tool, and it generally doesn't reflect the moment of the election, <laughs> you know. And I think reporters overutilize them, and and then we overutilize them because we read them, and then we sort of factor that into our perceptions of what's likely to occur. I, I do think there's another understated thing, which is that Biden incredibly overperformed. I mean, he he got, he he got his votes too, and I think he won because of COVID, frankly, and the COVID handling. And I think there's some expectation by the public that we find some way to work together on this particular issue. There, there's lots of other issues that there's going to be disagreement about, but my my view is. At some point, whether it's this end of this session or early next year, there will be a window of opportunity to do some collaborative work and some constructive work. And then we'll probably go back to our cages. But we'll let you ask those questions later on. Thanks, Chris. It does feel like, as as you said, Meg, that the, the polling industry has some self-reflection to do in terms of the modernization of the way that they do their work. Uh, and for a lot of us, that sort of undermines our confidence, not only in what they're saying, but what we hear from the media. But on the flip side of that, as you both pointed out, we saw once in a generation kind of turnout on both sides of this election. And that even with the divisiveness in our country, that can only be a healthy thing to see that many people participating in the electoral process. So there is a positive to come out of that. And JC, I, we can also say this, that I'm yet not ready to surrender the Senate just yet because we're gonna we still have these Georgia races in January, and we'll see what happens there. But the one thing, since the uh, conventional wisdom is that the Republicans will keep the majority after that election, then I'm keeping my <laughs> betting open on that one because one never knows, and there's a whole lot of reasons why this election is very different than any other election we've seen in Georgia in a post-election world. So there's no there's no past application here, in my view. I know others will maybe disagreeing with that, but you won't have this amount of tension, this amount, you won't have Trump running, you will have this month of resources. People probably won't do as much ticket splitting. You know, there are a lot of dynamics here that will be interesting to watch. 
Absolutely. My uh, niece is a freshman at the University of Georgia. She has been very participatory in the her first election process so far. So I'm doing a quick shout out to Kaylee Scott down in Georgia. I hope she's playing to the demographics. <laughs> I hope she's not. <laughs> so, Chris, you alluded to what comes next. But before we get into the next administration and the new Congress, let's talk about the final eight weeks of the Trump administration and its intent to finalize regulations and policies across the board, including in the healthcare space. In our space in particular, as you both know, they're looking at the rebate rule again. They're looking at a proposal to tie drug prices to an international benchmark. And I'd love to ask you how that's going to play out. But given the situation seems to change daily, by the time people hear this podcast, your answers may have changed. So I'm just going to ask you this. Is it typical for an outgoing administration to try to advance new and final policies at this point in a transition? Is what we're seeing sort of a usual and customary last attempt at cleanup business? Or is this something else? What's your perspective on what's happening? No, I think it's fair to say it's pretty usual. It, it may be more sloppy. This administration has not uh, forged a reputation of, and this isn't meant to be overly partisan, but great competence in execution. And it's very hard at the end of the year, at the end of, a, of an administration, to check all the boxes, legal process and otherwise to get, get things done. It can be done. It has been done. It will be done again. <laughs> and so I fully expect we will be seeing out the door policies that some people will like, some people will absolutely reject and use all the tools in, in Congress and the judiciary to respond to. Um, and then also, and the incoming administration, maybe unlike the current one, will evaluate each one on its attributes, on its benefits relative to their interest and make a decisions as to its options as to what it can do in terms of rescissions or delaying effective dates, et cetera. But there'll be one-off analysis. In Trump land, it seemed as though if, if Obama's name was on it, it was bad. Um, that won't be the case in all cases for the Biden administration. And Meg, do you agree with that? And in your experience, if this is sort of the usual end of an administration process, do these policies usually stick? or are they quickly changed? Well, I think I agree with Chris that there is some attempt usually for key, key things that are priorities of the administration to make sure they get it done on the way out the door. I think what has changed kind of in recent history is a couple things. One, my former boss, Don Nichols, wrote a law called the Congressional Review Act, which he was the first one to use and use successfully in the transition from Clinton to Bush. And then nothing until the beginning of the Trump administration, where it was used 17 times. So that's a that is a different dynamic in terms of undoing regs from a previous administration. And you really need a you need a perfect storm of a transition of power in the White House and then the party in the White House controlling Congress. And so these are all not, uh, these are all, it's, it's, you have to thread a needle, a particular needle to make sure that it works that, that way. The other thing I would say is that it's not as usual for an administration to push out as many things as they are that Congress doesn't want them to do. And I think the difference there is that a, there's throughout, throughout these four years, it's not a new thing. This White House and this administration has not been particularly concerned with 
necessarily does this help Congress or hurt Congress? Does this help us in the Georgia specials or does it hurt? You know, it's it's really more about their priorities and their policies. So I think that's a little outside the ordinary that if the majority leader would have called George Bush and said, please don't do this on your way out the door, that would have mattered to him. I'm not sure it matters with this White House. Well, it's going to be interesting to ride this roller coaster together for the for the last few weeks of the administration and see where we shake out on these things. So so let's look ahead now to next year. We've got a narrower House Democratic majority, in all likelihood, a, a narrow Republican majority in the Senate, although Chris is not yet conceding that point. Do you think there's going to be room for the two chambers to work together to get results in health care in the 117th Congress? And will any of that focus on prescription drug costs or insurance coverage issues? Is it all going to be COVID, given the presence of the pandemic with us? What, what do you think is on the agenda and what do you think is achievable? I do think it's going to be mostly COVID. I think the vaccine news is wonderful and we're all thrilled about that. And as PBMs will hopefully play a large role in helping with the distribution of that. Um, But this is not magically going away on January 1st, 2021. And so I think there's still going to be a lot to do both on the economic stimulus side, but also just on the healthcare side. I do think, and I don't think it's just me, that there is some healthcare fatigue in Congress. We have been just talking and working on a lot of these issues from 2009 straight through till now on the ACA and passing it and then should we repeal it and then how do we replace it and et cetera. I think there are some issues that they're going to have to address that they probably don't want to, but there are some Medicare solvency issues that are exacerbated because of spending during COVID. There's there's obviously COVID. So there are there are some public health and Medicare things that, that I think are going to be on the front burner. And then the truth of the matter is there's not a lot of, to Chris's point about going back to our corners, there's not a lot of agreement in that ACA Obamacare space right now. And I think that COVID and some Medicare focus is probably going to be more than they can say grace over. The other thing I would note is that both chairmen change in the Senate and one ranking member changes in the House for Republicans. And that changes the dynamics. Chuck Grassley is done, is term limited at finance and Mike Crapo comes in. He had a very different view than Chairman Grassley on drug pricing and had his own bill. Lamar Alexander is retiring and most likely Richard Burr will come in and take over the help committee. He has a very different perspective than, than Chairman Alexander. And then on the House side, on the Energy and Commerce Committee, Greg Walden is retiring. The odds-on favorite is Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who also has a different perspective. So I think those things also change the dynamic who's sitting at the table. Thanks, Meg. And Chris, maybe to ask you to to channel the incoming administration a little bit from from your perspective, how do you see the Biden administration approaching these questions of healthcare policy? What's going to be on their agenda? And, And given that Vice President Biden spent 35 years in the Senate, something of an institutionalist, how do you see him working with a theoretical Senate Republican majority? Well, I mean, whether it's a majority or not, he will want to try to work uh, with Republicans. He does have very deep and longstanding relationships with many of them. He's not the first to throw a bomb into those relationships or to engage in an unnecessary fight. I think first thing is first, though, with every administration is to reflect back what the Trump administration has done, where we are with the executive agencies in terms of cleanup and appointments, uh, get government up and running, make some initial, this every administration does this, take some very, very, very quick initial executive actions, which will, of course, include healthcare uh, in significant ways, and be COVID, COVID, COVID 
president until there's a feeling that we have some control over where we are in this country. And not just, and I would say not just to address the issues of the moment, but maybe to begin the conversation of what I call never again experiences. Uh, this country doesn't want to experience ever again what we've just gone through. And I think there'll be a bipartisan interest in, in collaborating on how we can avoid that going forward. So I see those things. The last thing I'd say about healthcare writ large is COVID has unmasked for a lot of people, not us in healthcare, but many other people about the shortcomings of our healthcare system, particularly in issues related to equity and disparity. And I think it's in the interest of both parties to see if there can be some collaboration on policies that begin to address some of those issues in meaningful ways. And I also know that the um, president-elect feels it's a moral imperative to address some of these states who have not expanded Medicaid. And and we'll want to find some creative, aggressive ways to do that. And Meg, just a quick follow-up question for you while we're on this topic. As an outside observer, I feel like Mitch McConnell is is very much a deal maker. And if he's trying to get an agenda done, he'll work with whoever he needs to, to to do that. You spent time working for Majority Leader McConnell. What's your perspective on how he might work with the new administration? I think that President-elect Biden and Leader McConnell have, have an existing relationship, decades serving together in the Senate during the eight years of the Obama administration. Quite a few of the large packages that came together came together because the two of them were able to kind of navigate a path forward, whether that was fiscal cliff or taxes or or you know, omnibus spending bills or whatever. I am not suggesting they are going to Cabo together for Easter, but I think that what that does is something, and this is not a partisan dig because it was an issue for Obama, it was an issue for George W. Bush. A lot of presidents, when they come here from outside of Washington, think that they're going to change Washington. And, you know, probably you're not going to change Washington. Like this is a gigantic ocean liner that uh, does not turn on a dime. We're not a little speedboat. President-elect Biden has a, has a, uh, history of knowing how to navigate the Senate, how to work with the House, how to talk to his colleagues in a way that I think having McConnell and and Biden just even be able to pick up the phone and say on day three and say, okay, are these two things doable? And the other, they have a they have enough trust in the bank to to say yes, no, and maybe. And I think that's a huge advantage for both of them for both of them to talk about what are the realistic opportunities to work together. And so I just think that existing trust is something that will be valuable no matter what the issue is. So let's talk a, a little bit about what they can then get accomplished with that backdrop right out of the gate during the first 100 days. You, you've both been involved with presidential transitions, Chris, during the, the Bush to Clinton transition and Meg when the Clinton to Bush transition. So can I ask you, given the apparent lack of communication between the Trump and Biden teams, how might that impact the agenda of the first 100 days? It has not been fatal to this moment. With each passing day, though, it becomes far more problematic. And, and really, in, in my pendulum of let people heal to recognize the law to stop being a child. And I'm sorry, but uh, I've never seen any administration, Republican or Democrat, incoming or outgoing, not collaborate with the other one. There is sort of a institutional and personal 
instinct of wanting whomever comes to fill your shoes to at least kind of know what where you were and why and a, and a little bit to help you out help them out the door you kind of feel like that's almost your patriotic duty this is not happening right now and a lot of people report on on you know the international implications and now now we're seeing people understand the implications relative to covid we don't even have the ability to access the departments the landing teams are prohibited by law to talk to the career and politicals right now there is no access to real-time information about data that demonstrates and documents the level of the problem of covid nor the contracts that exist to begin to implement even on the distribution of vaccines or therapeutics even to understand how the testing dynamics are working that are going to be essential to get us back to work um, and back to school. So uh, this is a huge problem and it's not a problem that should be targeted like, okay, I'll give the international, you know, I'll give this national security brief or I'll give you some data on COVID. The law is the law, <laughs> uh, which is to say there should be granted access across all agencies so we can have a smooth application of, of uh, both transition into governance, but also a capable uh, transition to governance. And lastly, I'll say this, there's an area that people don't really understand, but even the sort of formal vetting of people to, for positions in government get blocked because we don't have access to those resources. And so there's, there is going to be potentially a delay in effectively transitioning into governance with new federal officials that are necessary to run the government. So I think it's frankly time for everyone, Democrat and Republican, to call on this administration to follow the law. Meg, do you have a historical perspective on what's happening now and what you experienced? Yeah, I mean, obviously the transition from Clinton to Bush was delayed as well because we were still in a Supreme Court case about recounts in, in specific counties. So that didn't really happen until mid-December. And it's not ideal. It was something that the administration was able to overcome and and move forward on, but it's it's not what you want. In and even in the transition from Bush to Obama, while I was with McConnell at the time, we put together notebooks from each of our departments in the White House. And those of us who are alum, you know, were asked to kind of contribute, like, can you think of things that you need that you wish you had known? So the presidential personnel team put together a notebook that is, here's every nomination that you could possibly have to do. Here's what, you know, an OLA, we kind of did a, you know, these are the things you're most responsible for. Here's how we did our structure, et cetera. Now, I can't, I can't tell you that the Obamas studied that and implemented them exactly as we sent them. But to Chris's point, it does feel like your patriotic duty to just say, and, and all presidents have said, as George H.W. Bush did in a letter that a lot of people have circulated around this, like, you're now our president. And so I want you to be successful. I think that's a that's obviously this is a, a very different feeling than than we've had during most transitions. I don't think it's ideal. I don't think it's what either party would like to see. I don't think it's insurmountable. It's not perfect, but it's not insurmountable. And I think there is enough consistency on career staff and others that you that you can move forward and and start with the things that you want to do. 
What I really want to know, though, from that historical perspective is, are the stories true that from the Clinton to Bush, George W. Bush transition, that the Clinton people took the W's the off the keyboards? I was not there day one. I no, did I not there start. When we left, and there was maybe two people <laughs> who did that. Which, and, and I think that if, if you ask any of the Republicans who was handed back the keys, I think they felt it was a very collaborative. Once we got over the hurt feelings, I think I think I will say that the Gore Bush election was 537 votes or whatever in one state. There is no one in either party. I think even Donald Trump, who believes that you can overcome thousands and thousands of votes in multiple states and become president. And so the, the outcome is obvious here. The delays really are inexcusable. It was completely understandable during a recount. Uh, although, as you all remember, at post 9-11, there was a review that certainly immediately the intelligence information should have been granted to everyone concurrently. And of course, it would have been if that was the law. So the, the point is, the law is the law is the law. Everyone knows the outcome of this election, and we should get moving forward uh, for the good of the country, particularly even now, especially now when you're in the middle of a pandemic. Come on, people, <laughs> let's wake up and be adults. Yeah, and, and Chris, I agree with that. And I think that most Republicans would say the same thing, that this is, at the very least, you just both have the briefings. If it turns out one of you doesn't need them, no harm, no foul, right? And so I think that this is probably something that we're going to need to address going forward. So you all have been generous with your time. Let me ask you one final question as we look further ahead, because I know that you never tire of elections and you're excited for the next big election, which is going to be the midterms in 2022. I just want to have you both on record. And then in a couple of years, we'll have you back to, to see how you did. Well, give us your predictions. How do you see those, those midterms playing out? Do Republicans continue to build on their gains and take the House? Are we going to have status quo? Will we see a blue wave? What, what's going to happen in 2022? I will say, I think that the House is a little bit of an un, untold story right now. There's so much focus on the, the presidential and the runoffs in Georgia that the House is a little bit of the redheaded stepchild that people aren't paying attention to. But th there are some pretty significant changes in the House. This is a very slim majority for Speaker Pelosi, and I have no doubt that she'll be able to navigate it, but it's not easy. I'm sure John Boehner would be delighted to discuss some of, some of his concerns about those scenarios with her, or everybody he could read his book coming out in March. But I actually think that a midterm, historically, a midterm for a sitting president is not great. And so if you look at historical trends, it's more likely that the House would flip and the Senate potentially grows seats. I think you can look at the at the at the map and say there's some vulnerables that that Republicans would be concerned about, but that was true this year. I mean, the number of people who wrote off Senator Collins who said, "Well, oh, she can't win," and she is the hardest working campaigner that I have ever seen. And so I think I'm going to predict, and you have it on on recording, so you can play it back to me that we keep the Senate and flip the House. Chris, I assume you fully agree with that. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> um, and, and, and I, think, I think that there's some saneness behind the madness, which would would be, if we've learned anything, the predictions about election outcomes are frequently wrong. And I also say that what you have to do is you have to see what's different this time around. What is different is that the Senate isn't in the majority 
of the uh, new the first term president's hands. That's that has that doesn't happen. It's very very rare, and so to the extent to which there isn't any type of cooperation with the Biden administration, and it's viewed as counterproductive for the country and almost unresponsive to what it just felt it elected the new president to do, which I think is in shorthand, competent government, (laughs) okay, then I think the Democrats have a chance in the Senate. I think in a way on the House side, this scared them. This was a complete shocker to the House Democrats losing. In some ways, it's a wake-up call. So I will, of course, predict the opposite of Meg and say that the Senate will go Democratic and the House will re- be retained as majority, And uh, but we'll probably have a new speaker, which will be interesting to see uh, who that is, because I think the speaker has made a commitment this may, likely will be her last term. Well, it could be Chris because you don't have to be a member of the House to be Speaker. So I, I, I can assure you that uh, I will not be um, opting for that route for my career. Well, well, if we had votes, you would have our vote, Chris. Yes, you would. Thank you. We'll be excited to have you both back on to, to talk more about how that is shaping up and pressure test those, those predictions. But I will say that if President-elect Biden and the new Congress work together half as well as the two of you work together, I'm optimistic about the, the future of policymaking for our country. This was a lot of fun. Meg and Chris, thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thank you, JC. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, I encourage you to subscribe to The Pharmacy Benefit and download all of our podcast episodes. You can do that on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm JC Scott. Thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm.